15. We are going to start today in Luke chapter 15. We're going to read just a few verses, uh, and then we'll come back and discuss them. Read with me. Uh, It says this in Luke 15, verse 1. It says, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Uh, Man, that the lost, the broken, the people who were supposed to be far from God, they wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. I love that we serve a God who's attractive. Man, who's magnetic. We serve a God who, when we are actually able to present him as he truly is, people want what he has. People are designed to want what he has. So the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious, the clean, the ones who had it together, the ones who prioritized serving God, they didn't like it. They muttered. We see in the Gospels many times where the Pharisees mutter. God forbid that we have a muttering anointing. Uh, Let us not be these people. They muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Everybody gasped. How dare he? Verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in that same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your son who came to show us who you are, to demonstrate for us and teach us about your heart. God, as we dig into this parable today in the following two parables over the next couple of weeks, God, I pray for a heart transfusion in our church. God, let us set aside our heart, our fleshly heart, our broken heart, our fallen heart, and let us receive your heart for the lost. God, let us see the lost the way that you see them. God, let us pursue the lost the way you pursue them. Let us love the lost the way you love them, and let us reach the lost the way you reach them. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be more like Jesus. And we ask you to help us to do exactly that as we study your word over the next few weeks. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. I have titled this series, The Lost Parables of Jesus. And when we say the lost parables of Jesus, I don't mean like they were neglected and forgotten about for hundreds of years. I mean, there are three parables back to back in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus talks about the lost. First of all, he opens with this parable we just read that we're going to study today, the parable of the lost sheep. Then he talks about a lost coin. Then he talks probably most famously about a lost son. We often refer to that as the story of the prodigal son. But Jesus, back to back to back, shares three stories in one conversation about the lost. And I think these stories are so indicative and so informative for us. We have spent a lot of time this year at City Church really digging into our relationship with God, really focusing on on our faith making room for what God wants to do in our life, looking at how our faith can be unshakable, seeing how God is greater than all of the other gods that are out there. And I'm grateful for that. I think our church has grown this year. Man, not not just numerically grown. I'm talking about in here. Like we have grown as people. Uh, But I want to make sure over these next few weeks that we don't lose sight that there's more to our faith than just me and God. 
that God has actually given us a responsibility. That he's done all this for us. He's blessed us. He's reached us. He's saved us and rescued us for a reason. Number one, that reason is for his glory. But number two, that reason is so that we can share what he's done for us with others. Here in Luke 15, we see this truth so powerfully illustrated in these parables. Now, if you're not familiar with a parable, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Right? It's a story that God taught, that Jesus taught in earthly terms. He used things that 2,000 years ago they were very familiar with. He used agricultural terms, talked a lot about sowing and reaping uh, and wheat and harvest and things that maybe aren't as familiar to us as they would have been 2,000 years ago. He talks here about sheep, about shepherding. He, he's speaking to people who are very familiar with these types of things, but he uses these earthly things as symbols. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing, he's he's illustrating his sermon. He's telling stories to create word pictures to help us understand deep spiritual truths through simple physical stories. And I love the illustrations he gives for us here. All of Jesus' parables are powerful. All of them are important, but I, I, I adore Luke chapter 15. I have an evangelist heart at my root. I want to see people come to Jesus. I want to see the lost saved. I think that is so important. It's why the the vision of our church is literally reaching our city by reaching one. What is that? That's, That's an application of this parable right here. We are called to reach the city. We are called to grow, not so that the church can be bigger, not so we can fit more people in our building, not so we can say, look at how much our church is growing. Praise God. We're called to reach people because people are hurting, because people are lost, because people are broken, because there are lost sheep all over wandering away, caught in a ditch, caught in a thorn bush, not knowing where to go or where to turn. And we serve a God whose heart is always drawn to those lost people. My greatest hope for our church is that we would have that same heart. That we would see the lost, the hurting, the broken, the least, the same way that Jesus does. And respond to them the same way that Jesus does. Now, there's a couple applications of this parable. We'll start with one, then we'll work through and get to the other. The one that I think is most common and most well understood, perhaps, is personalizing this parable and understanding that I was the lost sheep. That Jesus left the 99 for me. That's so powerful. That's so deep. Each and every one of us, if you've experienced the transformative grace of Jesus Christ, it's because he is a savior who leaves the 99 and pursues the one who's wandered away. Because that was you. That was me. He came for me. He could have stayed comfortable. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have stayed where angels waited on him hand and foot, where people worshipped at his throne. Man, where there are angels around constantly declaring his holiness and his goodness. He could have very easily done that and rightfully done that. That was his right to be worshipped and glorified. But his love for me was so great That he abandoned the convenience of heaven. He left the familiarity of the throne room. And he came to live a life, a humble life, as one of us. 
He literally walked a mile in my shoes. In fact, he walked a whole lot more than a mile in our shoes, right? Because they didn't have vehicles. Uh, he wasn't, like, getting one mile a day in his steps. He was getting miles and miles, right? He didn't need a Fitbit to track it. He was probably pretty fit. Uh, he came and experienced what we experienced. He experienced temptation. He experienced suffering. He experienced rejection. Why? Because he's the Savior, the God who leaves the 99 and comes after the one. So we need to always remember that. Always celebrate that. Always lean into that. You see, the problem in this story is there's a collection of religious people, a collection of righteous people who don't think they needed a Savior who needed to come get them. They thought they had it together. They thought their goodness and their righteousness was enough. And it's easy for us to look at the Pharisees and say, you idiots. But the reality is, as Christians, if we're not careful, we can lean to that side of the fence pretty easily. Why? Because we get cleaned up. And we forget what it was like to be dirty. We get fixed. And we forget what it was like to be broken. We get healed. And we forget what it was like to be sick. And somehow, someway, somewhere in there, the enemy plants this little thought that, that we kind of earned it. That we kind of did it for ourselves. Yeah, God was a part of it, but, but I helped myself get to this place. And we forget the incredible grace of the one who saved us. So yes, personalize this story. Yes, lean in as the lost sheep who Jesus rescued. If you're here today and you haven't yet been rescued, this is the application for you. He loves you and he pursues you. He is after you. He welcomes you. He celebrates you. If you haven't yet given your life to Jesus, that's the application for you. Most of us have crossed that line of faith. Most of us have been brought back in to the sheepfold. So what is the application for us? Well, I think the application for us is much more close to Jesus' purpose in sharing this story. Jesus didn't share this story specifically for the lost to hear how much he loves them, although that's a great application of it. He really shared it for the religious, for the Pharisees, who were pointing fingers at him for welcoming sinners and spending time with sinners. He said, I need you to know this is the heart of the God you claim to serve. If you truly serve Yahweh as you want everybody out here to think that you do, this is the kind of heart you should have. This is the kind of heart that would dwell within you. And so church, over the next three weeks as we journey through these lost parables of Jesus, we're going to do a heart check. Where are we at? Because it's really easy when we first come to Jesus to care about all these lost people that we used to run around with. It's really easy when we first come to Jesus to be like, wow, my friends need Jesus. And my coworkers need Jesus. And these people need Jesus. And oftentimes the greatest evangelists in the church are the ones who have most recently come to save salvation. Because they're only one step away from still being out there themselves. But then we get saved for a while. God forbid we get civilized. And we forget that God didn't just save us for us. He saved us for them to go after them. So over the next few weeks as we study this, I want you to check your heart. 
want you to invite the Holy Spirit to speak into areas of your heart that perhaps have grown cold towards the lost. Perhaps have even grown angry or judgmental towards the lost. And I know you would never do that. I know that's just the people that sit next to you. That's not you. But consider with me today the possibility that it could be. That perhaps the enemy has blinded you to some areas of your heart that no longer reflect the heart of our Father or the heart of Jesus. God forbid that be the case, but if it is, let's allow God to speak to our heart today. It says in verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Man, what a vision. What a beautiful thing. I think if we would be like Jesus, the world would really want to hear what we have to say. If we would love like Jesus, there would be no shortage of people whose ears were open to hear the gospel. He says, all these people were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered. The man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. As this chapter begins, the Pharisees are grumbling at Jesus for the audacity to eat with tax collectors and sinners. You see, this was an offense in the Mishnah, which was a, a Jewish text, an, what we would call an extra-biblical text. It's not part of the Bible, but it was stuff that the, the Jews believed that they had added to Scripture. You didn't spend time around sinners. You didn't mingle with sinners. You shunned them if you were actually serving God. Um, despite this, Jesus, who is a rabbi, who's a leader, he actually welcomes sinners. This is massively offensive to these Pharisees. How dare he? Who does he think he is? Doesn't he know that is below him? Doesn't he know that's not how we treat these people? Those people aren't good enough to be near him. But look at what happens as we consider, continue in the story. Verse 3 says, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? By the way, this is shade at the Pharisees. Okay? They're the 99. Right? Now, who are the 99? The 99 are those who, who apparently don't need Jesus, which, by the way, they don't exist. But it's who the Pharisees think they are. They just didn't realize how badly they needed a Savior, too. They didn't realize how much they were wrapped up in self-righteousness, how much their heart was far from God, even though their outward actions perhaps lined up with some laws and some rules, but their heart was for themselves. It's really what we talked about in our previous series, right? It was self-glorification, self-worship. This is what the Pharisees are doing under the guise of worshiping God. And we can be just as guilty. Man, this is, this is a danger. It's a trap of Christianity. See, the reality is there's always a ditch on both sides. There's the unrighteousness ditch, the, the ditch of, of, man, pursuing the pleasures of the world and the sinfulness of the world. And we are called to get out of that ditch. We are called to holiness. We are called to righteousness. We are called to reflect Jesus and be like Jesus. And so if the enemy can't get me to fall in this ditch, then he's going to try to get me to overcorrect and end up in the ditch on the other side. When I was... 18 years old, I was about to graduate high school, and I had a, a number of scholarship offers. I, I 
qualified for a program called National Merit where I was a finalist. And, and so basically I could go to pretty much any public university uh, in the country that I wanted to for free. And so uh, with all the scholarship money that I qualified for, my parents decided they were going to give me a, a car from a high school graduation. And so they got me uh, a vehicle, uh, and it was a, a 1992 Dodge Stealth. Uh, and that's a really old vehicle because I graduated in 1999, okay? I'm old. Uh, but at the time, it was a pretty sweet ride. Uh, it was bright cherry red. It, it was a cop magnet, right? Like, it's a terrible car for an 18-year-old. Uh, and, and so terrible uh, that it was able to go much faster than I should have driven at any point in my life, but especially at that point in my life. Uh, and so one night, I'm at my girlfriend's house, uh, and I'm pushing it on curfew. I know I should leave by such and such a time, but I procrastinate. Uh, and I decided to test out my car and see what I can do, right? Can I make it home on time? And so they had just recently repaved the road, and so the shoulder was higher than it needed to be. We lived in North Carolina at the time, or I, my parents, my dad still lives there. Uh, and so this windy country roads kind of in the foothills of North Carolina. And so uh, as I'm driving home, my right front tire dips off of the shoulder on the right side. I'm about to go in the ditch over here. And so I do what any smart 18-year-old who has no clue what he's doing with a car who's much more powerful than he understands would do. And I crank the wheel this way. And so I stay out of this ditch. Man, I missed this ditch, and I missed it well, because uh, what I did is I ended up 20 feet in the ditch on that side uh, after doing one and a half spins, and the reason we know it was one and a half spins is you can actually see the tire marks, or probably not anymore, this is over 20 years ago, uh, but at one point in time, you could see the tire marks all across the road. Uh, by God's grace, I literally backed it in and parked right between two trees. I mean, it was absolutely the grace of God. It was God showing me this is what your actions are leading to. Is this really what you want? Uh, needless to say, I missed my curfew that night. Uh, didn't quite make it home on time. Um, but instead of ending up in this ditch, I overcorrected and ended up over here. And I wonder how many Christians, starting with a genuine desire to stay out of the unrighteousness ditch, Starting with the genuine desire to walk in holiness, to walk in God's blessing, to be like Jesus, we overcorrect and we oversteer and oftentimes without even realizing it, we end up way over here in the self-righteousness ditch. And the crazy thing about the Gospels, the scandalous thing about the Gospels is Jesus time and again is far more worried about the self-righteousness ditch than he is the unrighteousness ditch. And I believe there's a reason for that. And I don't think it's because self-righteousness is necessarily worse. Unrighteousness will keep you out of heaven. But I do believe that oftentimes self-righteousness is more deceptive. Because you think you got to go. Man, when you're living in the world, when, when you're living an unrighteous lifestyle, deep down inside, you know it. Deep down inside, there is a deep dissatisfaction with where you are. There is a deep unfulfillment. And you can cover that over with, with habits and addictions and pleasures, and, and you can try to escape from it. But eventually, you're going to be laying there late at night with an emptiness inside, with a recognition that this is not what I was designed for, this is not what I was made for. The danger of self-righteousness is you can sleep at night. The danger of self-righteousness is you can lay down in comfort and not just sleep, but you can actually sleep pridefully, smugly. Man, look at where I am. 
Look at what I'm doing. And so I don't think one keeps you out of heaven more than the other. Don't misunderstand me. Unrighteousness is massively dangerous. But Jesus, time and again, is far more condemning towards self-righteousness because he understands the blinders that self-righteousness places on us. And so he comes and he calls the Pharisees, the 99, who think that they have it together. He says, there's a shepherd who leaves you, who abandons you, who walks away from you to go after the lost. This sounds offensive as a Christian. God would leave me to go after the lost, but the reality is God never leaves you or forsakes you. He's with you all the time. He doesn't actually walk away from you to go pursue the lost because you were one of the lost. He's always with you. The Pharisees just didn't realize that. Verse 5, it says, and when he finds it, when Jesus finds the lost sheep, he joyfully, everybody say joyfully. joyfully. You know, Jesus didn't just rescue you spitefully. He didn't just, re- he didn't just come and like, man, I can't believe you got yourself in this mess again. You ever been like that as a parent, right? Like, that's how my parents were when they came to get me out of the ditch, right? When they came to see me, like, you, what did you do? We just bought you this car. Can I just say, I was grounded for a minute after this happened. Rightfully so, by the way. Jesus comes and joyfully rescues you. But not only does he joyfully rescues you, then he carries you. Right? And it's just like that poem that everybody has in their bathroom. Right? There's one set of footprints. Why is there only one set? You abandoned me, Jesus. No, he didn't. It's right next to 1 Corinthians 13. You know what I'm talking about. You've been in that bathroom. I'm not knocking it. It's a great poem. It's true. Jesus comes and he throws you on his shoulders joyfully. Not out of obligation. Not because there's just no other way and this is the only solution, even though that's the truth. But he joyfully picks you up and carries you back where you need to be. He goes home. And then he calls his friends. And his neighbors together. And he says, rejoice with me. Aren't you glad you serve a God who rejoices? Serve a God who's joyful. Not a God who's angry. He's not a God who's mad at you. He's not a God who's rolling his eyes that we have to do this all over again one more time. He is joyful at your repentance. He is joyful at your restoration. He is joyful at who you are in process of becoming. Even though you may not be there yet. Even though you might have just been in a thorn bush. Even you might have ended up in a ditch again. He picks you up and he places you on his shoulders and he carries you back where you belong. And then he calls his friends together and he says, let's party. Let's celebrate. Verse 7, he says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more. Everybody say more. More. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Everybody say, that's me. There was more rejoicing in heaven when you came to Jesus than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, understand this. There is no such thing as 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. 
But even if there were, Jesus rejoices more over the one who comes back than the hypothetical 99 who never had to come back. Why? Because he's a God of restoration. He's a God of redemption. This this is literally a story of, of redemption. Redemption is returning something to its rightful place. I always use the, the illustration of Kroger coupons. We shop at Kroger, and we have, like, a code that we punch in every time we go to Kroger so we can save money on our gas. It's probably a scam, and we're probably suckers, but we're in, okay? Um, so we get our Kroger points, uh, and we use them for our gas, and so Kroger now has, like, the data on everything we buy. So they send us coupons on the stuff that we buy so we come back and get more of it, right? They know what they're doing. Uh, And and so every once in a while we get an amazing coupon like a free pack of bottled water uh, or a free pack of bacon. Uh, And so what do we do? We redeem that free bacon, hallelujah. What is... What is redemption? Redemption is bringing something back to its rightful place. I can't take my pack of free bacon coupon to Walmart. They're not going to honor it there. I, I can't take it to Piggly Wiggly, even though it's a pig, right? doesn't work that way. The only place I can take it is the place where it came from, which is Kroger. And so when God redeems you, he's restoring you back to your rightful place. Back to the place in the garden where Adam and Eve were created before sin. And God looked down and said, it is very good. You have a rightful place in relationship with God, not separated from God. And sin came in and brought division. It separated us, but Jesus came to redeem you, to bring you back where you belong. So what do we do with this? I want to give you very quickly just kind of four, four basic thoughts. This is fundamental. This is rudimentary. None of this is going to be new, okay? This is not like, oh, my goodness, this is the best sermon I ever heard. I can't believe you got this out of it. This is, you could teach this sermon, okay? You could get up here and, and teach this. But it's so basic, sometimes the basics are very important for us. And the danger as believers is we move on from the basics and we forget the basics and we forget our heart for the law. So I'm going to give you, I'm gonna bring you back to the basics today. Number one thought is this, Jesus loves sinners. Every four-year-old knows this, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. Like we get it from an early age, we understand that Jesus loves sinners. But the danger is as we become less and less outwardly sinful, our heart moves further and further away from those who are. And Jesus, the good shepherd, loves those who mess up. He loves those who live sinful lives. In this story, he talks about tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were so hated, they got their own category. They were were their own brand of sin. They were betrayers. They were traitors. They they, they were cheats. They were liars. They were thieves. They were all these sins rolled up into one. And so they got their own special category. And Jesus ate with them. Jesus actually invited one of them onto his team. Matthew was a tax collector. He goes to Zacchaeus' house and spends time with him. And, And time and time again, he's encountering tax collectors. And the Jewish leaders are like, what are you thinking? Those are the worst people. Those are the people you can't trust. You're going to put that one on your team? You're going to let him write an account of your life? Are you out of your mind? He is so disqualified. And here's the thing. They're not wrong. Tax collectors were awful people. They were despicable. 
They were all the sins wrapped into one. They were betrayers. They were completely untrustworthy. And yet Jesus in his goodness saw something beyond the lifestyle that was lived. And he understood there was something in Matthew that God had placed in there before sin corrupted it that he could redeem and restore. He sees the same in the laws today. We don't have tax collectors that are hated today. I mean, maybe you live next to an IRS agent and you're not like best friends. But, but they're not really like branded the way they were back then. But we've got categories of sin. We've got people that we don't associate with. Remember this. Jesus loves sinners. He does not just tolerate them. He does not just want them to get their lives right and restored and cleaned up. At his heart, at his core, he loves them. And you and I wear the name Christian, which literally means little Christ, means we're supposed to reflect his heart, respect, reflect his nature, reflect his desires to a lost, hurting, and broken world. And so if Jesus loves sinners, City Church, we better love sinners. Verse 4 says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one lost sheep until he finds it? Number two, Jesus pursues sinners. He doesn't just love us and leave us there. Like, man, I wish you would come home. Man, I, I, wish, I wish you would get right. He actually goes and seeks us out. Right? We, we sang the song, right? Like, he, we, he chases us down. How could I be lost when he's called me found, right? Like, he, he, he seeks us when we're lost. He comes after us. It's what he does. He pursues sinners. So here's my question. You may love sinners. You may love the lost. You may care about the lost. Who are you pursuing right now? Let's just get to the nitty-gritty. Jesus doesn't stop at loving the lost. Sometimes maybe we think that we're good because we, well, man, I got a heart for the lost. I love the lost. I'm not judging them. I'm not pushing them away, but... What are you doing to reach them? Because Jesus doesn't stop at love. He demonstrates his love with action, and he pursues them. I'm talking to myself, too, here, guys. I'm not trying to, to be the big, bad preacher who's got this all together. Like, I can drift off of this just as easily. Like, this is who God's wired me to be and made me to be, but I can get bogged down. I can get caught up in stuff. I can get busy. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm, I, I, man, I miss this. And time and time again, God has to call me back to this. Who are you pursuing? Who are you going after? Who are you actively seeking God and interceding for so that they can find restoration? And, and let me even push past one other thing. Because I think sometimes we do this because we have a key family member, a sibling, a spouse, a child, a parent who's far from God and we're pursuing for them. But I think God wants, I think, I think that better happen, right? Like that's the basics and you better be going after them. But I think the heart of the Father is that he goes after those who are far from him, not just those who are close. And so I think we need to be pursuing somebody outside of our family, too. I'm not saying stop pursuing your family. Please don't, don't misunderstand me. But I don't think we should just default to that. Well, hey, I'm, I'm praying for my kid. I'm praying for my parent. Like, I'm praying for them. Yes, but who, who are you pursuing that's outside of your, your usual easy circle? Number three, Jesus rescues sinners. He rescues sinners. Verse 5 puts it this way. He says, and when he finds it, talking about the lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Now, the reality is you and I can't rescue sinners, but we can point them to the one who does. Right? And so we've got to continually remind them. 
This is who loves you. This is who's for you. This is who pursues you. Now, please don't misunderstand me. There's another ditch here that we can get in, and that's the ditch of thinking that because Jesus does all these things that Jesus celebrates sin, Jesus participates in sin. Jesus didn't do any of those things. Jesus pursued sinners, but he did not pursue sin. So, so this is not a justification for, man, just go get wasted with your buddies so you can show them the love of Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. Do not put that on me. You will answer to God for that. Don't, I'm not answering to God for that. I didn't say that. The, this is pursuing sinners, not participating in sin, not celebrating their sin, not encouraging their sin. Okay, there's a difference. I'm going to love them enough to point them to the one who wants to set them free. To the one who wants to clean them up. To the one who wants to bring them their redemption. Returning them to their rightful place. And so Jesus pursues sinners. He rescues sinners. He loves sinners. Number four, Jesus rejoices when sinners repent. Praise God, I have a God who rejoices when sinners repent. Here at City Church, when somebody responds to what we call our fresh start and gives their life to Jesus, we always say, hey, there's a, there's a celebration going on in heaven. There's a party going on in heaven, and this comes directly from this parable. This is not just a hope or an idea. It's not something that just sounds good. This is something that Jesus himself says. Look at what he says. He says, when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder, talking about this lost sheep, and he goes home. Go ahead and throw verse 7 back up there for me real quickly. Look at verse 7. Um, it says this in verse 7. Sorry, i got to find it in my notes. I lost it. Here we go. He says, uh, no, sorry, verse 6. Uh, he calls his friends together and neighbors, and he says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost Sheep, And then he says, verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over that one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Jesus celebrates. He calls a party to celebrate. And so he wants us to celebrate. Today in just a little while, we're going to get to baptize at least four people. Uh, and many of you won't be there, I know, because you're going to go to other stuff you've already got committed to, and, that, and that's okay. Um, but we're going to celebrate, we're going to rejoice over four people who have turned from a life of sin, who have given their life to Jesus. Now, today is going to be a little bit different for me than it's ever been, because today I get to baptize my seven-year-old daughter. And I hesitate to even say that because I don't want to diminish the other three people who are getting baptized at all, because they are just as valuable and just as important But that little girl is special to me. I'm going to rejoice. See, she's asked to get baptized for a while, and we, we've kind of held her back. We've kind of said, you know, we, we don't want to just jump into this. We want to make sure that you're ready. We want to make sure you understand. And so she asked about it again, and we asked her, well, tell us why. Why do you want to get baptized? And in her seven-year-old way, in her faith-like-a-child way, she said, I want to be like Jesus, and I know that Jesus has saved me. And I'm bawling. It's like, okay, you can baptize me to do it. <laughs> now, I got to tell you this. Uh, when she was like four, like our kids have seen many people get baptized here. Uh, and so when she was like four, uh, she decided she was in the bathtub. My wife was giving her a bath. She decided she wanted mom to baptism her. And she said, mom, will you baptism me? And so she got baptismed uh, in our bathtub. Uh, so it, it has been done. Uh, but obviously we know that baptism is a public declaration of faith. 
And so there was nobody else in that bathroom but her and mom. Uh, so we're going to do a public declaration of Alexa's faith. Here's why I tell you that, not to celebrate my daughter as excited as I am about that. But today, for maybe the first time, I get a deeper glimpse of what it's like for our father to rejoice when one gives their life to Jesus. Now, his heart is far more pure than mine, and it's far greater than mine. And so I'm not saying that I'm going to really understand what God's like. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm still going to have a, a far gap between where I am and what God experiences when we give our life to Jesus. But I promise it's going to be a new level I haven't quite gotten to before. I'm going to rejoice. Who are you rejoicing over? You see, if we're not careful... We get so separated from the lost and forgetful about the lost, and we, we, we make this inward Christianity. You see, I think one of the dangers of American Christianity especially is America, everything's so personal. Everything's so, man, it's, it's about my private relationship with God. It's my personal relationship with God. And, yes, you better have a personal relationship with Jesus. But nowhere in the Gospels is the relationship with Jesus exclusively personal. It's always corporate. It's always public. It's always a celebration together. It's a body of Christ. And if we're, if we're not careful, we think this thing is really just about me and God when the reality is, yes, it's about me and God, but it's about me and God and his church. It's about me and God and, and these others that he loves, that he has a heart for, that he's pursuing, that he's sending me to. And so, yes, I need to love sinners. Yes, I need to pursue sinners. Yes, I need to, to rescue sinners. Yes, I need to rejoice when sinners repent, why? Because that's who Jesus is, and that's what he does. And so very simple, very basic message today, church. Heart check time. What's your heart for the lost look like today? See, the easy thing to do is say, well, I, I care about the lost. I want to see the lost come to Jesus. Hopefully each and every one of us can clear that bar, right? Each and every one of us want the lost to come to Jesus, but what are we doing about it? I don't mean that to be condemning. I don't mean to sit here and, and point fingers and like, you failure. You're Please, I'm so proud of where this church is at right now. I'm so grateful for what God is doing in your lives and the way you're growing, the way that, that we're reaching people. Like, this is not a, man, we, we need to get it together message. It's, it's just a simple, does God have a level that we're not walking in? we drifted off of this? Have we forgotten about this? Have we gotten distracted? Because life is good at distracting us. You see, the enemy is so great at recognizing, I can't get you in this ditch, so I'm going to get you over here in this one. And we got to constantly recenter. And what do we recenter on? On who Jesus is. On Jesus' example. On his witness. On the picture that he's given us of what the heart of the Father is. And so today, church, I call you to the Father's heart for the lost. I call you again to Jesus' heart for the lost. This probably isn't new information. This probably isn't something you've never heard or considered before. But perhaps your heart has started to drift. Perhaps your, your heart has been consumed with other things. And if that's the case, today, let the Holy Spirit call you back to centering on Jesus' heart for the lost. Let the Holy Spirit call you back to a place where you would pursue the lost, where you would chase the lost, where you would do everything in your power to see the lost come to Jesus because that's what Jesus does. He does everything in his power short of violating people's free will so that we can be restored, we can be redeemed, we can be with him. Amen.
Amen. Would you stand with me? I want to pray over you, church.